truths that it declares about you, that we might know you, that we might love you, that we might be intimately related to you, that our relationship might be deepened with you. Father, transform our hearts and our minds today. Adjust our ways of thinking, adjust our ways of living, adjust our ways of being in this world. Repair and restore our image bearing, Father. Cause us to be conformed to the image of your son, Jesus Christ, through your word today. We ask it in his name. Amen. So this morning, as we continue our series together, this Psalm, Psalm 11, we see Jesus, the lover of righteousness, Jesus, the lover of righteousness. In the first few verses, there's the concept of of taking refuge in the in the Lord. Lord, I take refuge in you. Uh, David makes the declaration in the first half of verse one. And we have to talk for a minute about what refuge means, what that is. Uh, what exactly is a place of refuge? Um, you know, it's a. Uh, it's where we get our English word refugee, which is talked about quite regularly in our news media uh, today. Um, refugee status and, and, place, and things like that. And so what does it mean to have a refuge? Um, biblically speaking, from the Hebrew context, it meant uh, um, to, the, the ability to go to a place where you'll find safety, comfort and rest. That's the idea. It's the ability to go to a place where you'll find safety, comfort and rest and built into it, at least in the biblical model of of how they use the word. It implies that that place that you're going to to seek those things can be trusted to provide those things with definite assurance. So it's not a I'm going to take a chance and leave the dangerous place that I'm in. Because I heard there's a better place over there and I don't really know if it's going to work out better for me or not when I get there, but it can't be any worse than where I am now. So I'll, I'll take a chance on it. It's not that kind of refuge. That's not the idea. And of course, in our modern cultural context, often that's the idea of, of taking refuge. It's things are terrible where I am. I heard things are better over there. I'm going to take a chance that when I get there, they're going to be as good as they say they were. But I don't really know that for sure. Not the biblical idea of refuge. The biblical idea of refuge, particularly as it relates to the Lord being our refuge, is it is a definite place that you can go to where there is safety, comfort, and rest. And when you get there, you can be assured that those things will be supplied to you. It is a guarantee. Why? Because the the status of those things is not built on me. Or the circumstances that I find myself in, but rather the location, the relational location that I find myself in, namely the presence of the Lord. For those who are not against the Lord, those who are not the Lord's enemies, those who are not living in their wickedness, those who are upright in heart, we'll see that at the end of the psalm. They have the distinct privilege of God's love being cast on them and they are welcomed in to enjoy all of the benefits of what it means to be a citizen of God's kingdom and to be a child of the most high to have God as their father. And so there's a real refuge that happens, real comfort, real safety, real rest. Now, interestingly, if we are honest, 
We, we really don't feel that way. Say, Philip, speak for yourself. I'm 100% sold that God is my refuge, and I absolutely feel that way about him. Truly, is our understanding of the Lord that he truly supplies this kind of refuge? Absolutely it is. 100%. So you haven't sinned recently? I know, I had a professor said you, you shift from preaching to bedlam when you start talking like this. You haven't sinned recently? Our sinning is a distrust of who the Lord is. It's us seeking our comfort and our safety and our rest in something that is contrary to the will of God. So have you sinned recently? All right. If you haven't blatantly sinned by sin of commission, what about passively sinning by sin of omission? I know I'm supposed to trust the Lord in X, but I'm still just worried and anxious and about to have the top of my head blow off from all this fear and distress and, and distraught and this, uh, this just anxiety and all this stuff that I'm experiencing my spirit because in my humanness, I just don't see how this is going to work out and I just don't see what I'm going to do and I just don't see how I'm going to come out on the other side and if God really loved me and he really cared about me, he wouldn't be putting me through this in the first place and all of that stuff that we talked about the last time where, you know, it's okay to be that way, but it's not okay to stay that way and maybe you've been that way for a really long time and you've not gotten to the back half of the psalm and you're resting in all of your frustration with God because God's not doing it the way you think God ought to be doing it that's not having God as our refuge so when David makes this statement in the first half of verse 1 It's profoundly challenging. Because he says it with just vigor. In the Lord, I take refuge. Definite, done, over, happen. We know from the last psalm, David didn't always feel that way. Where are you, God? That was his last one. (laughs) This week, he's having a better week. Isn't that the way it is with all of us? And so when we talk about God being our refuge, when we talk about him being our definite, for sure, trusted place of safety, comfort and rest, is that really our understanding of God? Do we trust him or do we seek these things, safety, comfort and rest elsewhere? And and we get real tricky about it sometimes. Sometimes we take things that are good and we disguise them for the good things that they are. When in truth, if we were to pull the disguise off of those good things, they would in fact be little idols that we have made to cover up the fact that we don't actually trust God the way that we should trust God. Instead, we're pouring all of our energy and time into these good things so that we can show that we actually trust ourselves. Wow, that Bob, man, he's a hardworking dude. He puts in 80 hours a week, man, and he's he's well respected in the community and everybody loves him and he provides well for his family. And he I mean, he really gets the job done and he's really about his business and he's got his mind straight. And you know what? Being about your business and working hard and having a good plan and having people respect you for the efforts that you put into work. The scripture teaches are all good things. 
unless it's a smokescreen for some deep seated fear that you have about the future, about your life or about how people will think of you or you're trying to make up for something that happened in your childhood. And so you don't want to be like that bum that always was checking out and somebody else had to help pay the bills because they never took care of you. And now you're swapping out that life for this go get it life. And it's coming off of look how good of a guy I am because I'm working so hard. Everybody respects me and they think I'm great. I give all glory to the Lord. When in fact, it's really just a way to find trust in self rather than trust in God. Friends, it's a fine line. There's a lot of things in the Bible, a lot of things in the Bible that say are good things that we should pursue. But friends, God doesn't care about the end result. He cares about the motivation of the heart. And if I pursue that which is good and right with a heart that is wayward and wicked, the end result doesn't matter. It's the condition of my heart. This is why the scripture says that even the prayer of the wicked man is an abomination to God. Praying to God is a good thing. Unless it's coming from a heart of wickedness. And then it's something that God hates. So friends, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I putting all this energy into whatever it is I'm putting all this energy into? Why am I striving with whatever it is I'm striving with? Is it because I'm longing to exemplify the glory of God through this good thing? Or is it that I'm using this good thing as a smokescreen or the fact that I don't really trust God? And I want to find a way to trust myself. Hey, you know what? I know God will probably look out for me and I know God will probably take care of me. But I'm going to hedge all my bets over here by doing as much stuff in my own way as I possibly can. And it's good stuff, so God will probably bless it anyway. Do we really trust God in the way that we ought to? And so in the second half of this verse, it's, it's a weird transition. It doesn't come through very well in English. But in the Hebrew text, there's a transition where a different speaker is speaking besides David. And the reason why David is declaring that he takes refuge in the Lord is because this other speaker or group of speakers now presents an issue. They present the, the and David re- rejects this notion of, of, of what they're saying. And so in the second half, how can you say to my soul? So notice he's acknowledging someone else is about to speak to me. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow and they make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness and the upright of heart. So David rejects the call to find safety elsewhere. Why would I seek safety somewhere else besides the Lord and the answer from the faint hearted is their fear. Look at what the wicked's doing. Look at how bad the world is. Look at how things are caving in. Can you believe that they elected this person? Can you believe that they passed that law? Can you believe that they did this thing? Can you believe what happened? What's happening in the market? Can you believe what's going on in this industry? Can you believe that they shut this down and they're building that up? Can you believe that they're pushing this kind of agenda? Probably didn't say any of that stuff in David's day, but it wouldn't resonate unless we did talk about it like that this morning. Because that's what most Christians that I run into sound like right now. The wicked have bent their bow. They've made ready their arrow on the string. They're going to shoot into the darkness at the upright in heart. Can you believe that they're doing all of this stuff? Whole world's caving in on itself. There's nothing we can do. Before you know it, we're going to be living in a tent. Hiding in the wilderness with bunkers full of food. It's going to be terrible. 
And David rejects this. Not that the world couldn't get that bad. Trust me, David actually legitimately did live in caves <laughs> and had to like scrounge for his food and was worried for his life because people were always trying to kill him. Like this, this is a real story for David. This isn't like a speculative, hey, it might get really bad, so I have to be concerned about how bad it might get. Like these things really did happen to David. Notice that's not what he talks about. Notice that's not what he says. Notice that's not what he's concerned about. And then there's this shift to the statement in verse three. And it's difficult to tell from how the psalm is written, which way this should go. If the foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do? And and the struggle with the statement is, is this still a continuation of the voice of those who are expressing why they're afraid? The foundations of our society get shifted. How can we live? How can we not be destroyed? What will we do? This will be terrible. Or is it David making a theological concern back to those who have voiced their fear to him? Meaning, namely, the foundation of the idea of God being the one we take refuge in. If the foundation of our trust in the Lord is destroyed, what would the righteous be able to do? And the way it's constructed, it's really hard to tell which one that is. So what I love to do with Hebrew poetry when it could go both ways is assume that the writer meant for it to go both ways. You can do that with poetry. You can get one line to mean multiple things. You can do that. In fact, the best poets do that. You start reading through a line of poetry and they say something and you go, oh, wow, that's. Oh, no, wait, maybe, maybe they mean both. I don't, the best ones can actually make it mean three things, but that's really hard to do. So we'll let cut David a little slack here. He was probably in a cave someplace while this was being written. So what does this mean? What does this mean? It means that those who are afraid and not trusting in the Lord feel that if the foundations are destroyed and the foundations they're talking about are not the foundations of trust in God, but the foundations of what they have established for themselves, the social structures and the culture and the reality and the things that they have found comfortable, these things are shifting. And if these things shift, how can the righteous not be destroyed? David is responding quite potentially with, yeah, if the foundations are destroyed, namely our trust in the Lord, then of course the righteous are going to be destroyed. Because what else do the righteous have if not for God being on his throne? Which, by the way, is exactly what gets transitioned to in the second half of the psalm. David's hope is not in his circumstances. David's hope is not in everything working out okay. David's hope is not in society being a certain way or a certain person being on a throne. David's hope is that the Lord loves righteousness. And would it be a wonderful shift in our own lives if every time we saw some expression in the world that was clearly wicked, that was clearly off, that was clearly wrong, that was clearly dangerous for everyone's well-being, If our response wasn't one of 
fight and flight, but rather our response is, you know what, this is bad, this isn't good. Clearly something needs to be done about this. But step one for me is to remember that the Lord loves righteousness and not wickedness. And he is not unaware of what's happening. I'm going to be just very frank and honest. That is not normally step one for me when I observe ills in our society. It is not usually to go where David goes and to say, you know, that, yeah, this is bad, but the Lord loves righteousness. Let me reorient my way of thinking about this thing that's going on, reminding myself that the Lord is displeased with this. And he is sovereign and he is in control and he is way more powerful to deal with this than I am. And he likely has some greater plan for the presence of this wickedness in our world right now that will in some way reflect his glory beyond any way that I could begin to think or imagine. And I will trust God in the midst of this because he loves righteousness. So let's let's take a look. Let's unfold it. Look at what David says. What's the Lord's place in all of this? Friends, are the wicked bending their bow? Yes, they are. Are they making ready their arrow on the string? Yes, they are. Are they ready to shoot into the darkness at the upright in heart? Yes, they are. And it's always been that way. And friends, until until the Lord returns and glory happens, it will always be that way. There's no golden age that you can point back to. Of great peace. Great calm and great comfort and great righteousness. You might have small pockets of it in certain places around the world at certain times. But globally, the world is a dark place. Full of pain, full of suffering and full of sorrow because it's broken and full of sin. And so this is always true. So where is the Lord's place in all of this? If it's always true, David tells us the Lord is in his holy temple. All right. So we're not, you know, late B.C., early A.D. Jewish people. So what is the temple? When it says the Lord's in his holy temple, what is the temple? The temple has at least fourfold realities to it. There's more, but at least these four are the most important. First, the temple is a place of sacrifice. That's where they went and did the sacrifices, most particularly the Day of Atonement sacrifice. But it is also the place where they made other sacrifices. There was bloodletting in the temple. Bloodletting for sin. So it's important to note that David starts with this notion of the Lord being in his temple and the temple was a place of shedding of blood for sin. Don't let that slide past your mind as we think this through. Second, the temple was a place of worship. They would come and they'd read the word and they would sing praises and they would hear the word read to them. The temple, because it was a place of sacrifice, was also a place of atonement. It is the location at which the day of atonement would take place. And the first day of atonement, when they laid the uh, the sacrifice upon the altar, God himself threw the fire down out of heaven to consume that offering, demonstrating that his wrath was being shifted from the sinners who deserved it to a substitute that did not deserve it. 
But it would appease the wrath of God that those who've been made in his image might be able to stand right before him, which then leads to the fourth concept of the temple. The temple was a place of reconciliation, being able to be made right with God again. When David makes the declaration that in the middle of the worst things that you can see going on in your society, that the Lord is in his holy temple, what should flood your mind is God is reminding me of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Who I come regularly, hopefully daily, into his presence to worship because he has made atonement for me and has reconciled me to God where I am now his friend and not his enemy. Friend, there's nothing that will get you through the sorrows and the ills of society than a reminder that this place is not really your home any longer. You're merely passing through. But then David makes an even more robust statement. Not only is the Lord in his holy temple, but while in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is there in heaven. He connects the idea of priesthood. With kingship. The place of his kingship and his rule. God sees all things as both priest and king. He is the one who is making the sacrifice simultaneously, as we prayed earlier in the idea of the Trinity is the one who is the sacrifice and the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. And simultaneously, he is the king of the universe. And he moves to this idea of seeing things through the perspective of God. His eyes behold what a statement. What a statement. When I enter into my anxiety about my circumstances, when you enter into your anxiety about your circumstances, part of the reason why that anxiety takes such a deep root in all of our hearts is that we forget that God sees. We sound like David from last week instead of David from this week. Where are you, God? Don't you see what's going on in my life? The uh, his Eyes behold. Yes, he sees what's going on. He doesn't know this right that they've taken away. He doesn't know this law that they've passed. That they know this thing that's happening. They see this atrocity that has occurred and this genocide and this, this and this, that and the. His eyes behold. He is not unaware. Of what's going on in our world. In fact, more than just his eyes beholding, he continues in a very poetic fashion. It's really a cool phrase. His eyelids test the sons of men. That is such a weird phrase. It's so strange. You're like, well, it surely it means something else. All right, well, the literal rendering is his eyelids test the sons of men. And when I was thinking about that this week, I was like, okay, this idea of putting something to the test and, and, and the language here, that word for test is the, the testing of metals by melting them when putting them under heat to test their quality and to get rid of their imperfections. That, that's the word test that's being used here. So the test for metal purity and strength 
That's what it is. His eyelids put the fire to mankind to test their worth and their value and their strength. That is so weird. Because when you think about your eyelids, it's the last thing that you want anybody messing with. Like, I don't even want to touch my eyelids. I don't want you to touch my eyelids. It's a weak little thing. All it's real, really supposed to do is help keep dust out of your eye. And occasionally move across your eye and keep it wet so that your eye doesn't dry out. That's about the full extent of what your eyelid does. Horribly weak. I certainly don't want to use it to set anything on fire. Like, no thank you, I'm not signing up for that. There's a lot of stuff I'd sign up for, I'm not signing up for that one. And of course, you don't want to hear this story, and I don't necessarily need to tell this story, but when I was reading this this week, I couldn't help remember this story, so you get to share my pain with me. So when I was a student at the University of Memphis 10,000 years ago, and I was a freshman, and I went into the library, I can see my wife cringing already, because she's heard this story, and she's like, I still can't believe that this is true. So I went into the library for the first time, I was trying to get all signed up for the system, and figure out how to like check stuff out, to like try to be a decent student or whatever. And so I went into the library, and I walk up to the counter, and the girl that's working behind the desk, she's, she's kind of looking down, at least I thought that's what she was doing. And her eyes are kind of cast this way. And I walk up to her, and I say, excuse me, I was wondering if you could help me, And then she looks up and opens her eyes and actually looks at me because she had tattooed on her eyelids eyeballs to make it look like her eyes were never closed. And I just remember kind of taking a step back going, I don't know if to be terrified or like crazy impressed at the pain threshold you must have to have had a needle make an eyeball on both of your eyes. Like, how'd you ever get to the second eyelid? Like, I think I actually asked her that question. How'd you ever get to the second eyelid? There's no way. There's no way. It's a weak little whatever. And God is so great and so mighty and so powerful that the psalmist uses in a poetic expression, the eyelids of God set mankind on fire and test to see what they're worth. And I'm like, Ooh, man, don't let him bring his hands or his feet or anything into this like stuff you'd actually use to do this. If his eyelids can do that. Wow. It's a statement, it's a weird statement, but it's a statement about the glorious power of the observation of God in his world. His very eyelids, if he were to have them, can set men on fire. And what does it do? It tests the righteous and the wicked. God tests the righteous and the wicked. This is that same word for testing, by the way used twice here. God puts them under the fire of his gaze and observation. And he tests the righteous and he tests the wicked. This is very similar language to what Paul used in the New Testament. About the righteousness that should come out of our lives. The pure metal that should come out of our lives. Peter discusses it as well. And then he expresses a judgment upon the wicked. Upon the wicked, he will rain snares. Coals of fire, presumably in the flow of the poem from his eyelids. My eyelids don't do cool things like that. I used to think if I ever had a superhero power, it would be able to fly. Now I want my eyelids to be able to set stuff on fire. That would be awesome. 
God's superpowers are way cooler than any of the comic books we come up with. And so he, he rains snares upon the wicked. Fire and brimstone and burning wind is the portion of the wicked's cup. All right, so I'm stressed out about what the wicked are doing. I'm stressed out about how the world's caving in on itself. I'm stressed out about all these bad circumstances I find in. I even try to dissuade those who are trusting the Lord to not trust the Lord and to just flee and try to help themselves. And the psalmist David here toward the end says, why would I do that? Because all the things that the wicked are trying to do to me, ultimately God will do to them tenfold. And why will he do that? Because the Lord is righteous. We could have spent weeks on that half of a sentence in this psalm. The Lord is righteous. There's a lot of times in our Christian life where we don't believe that. We don't think that's true. Say, Philip, you're meddling again. No, I'm just going back to the first original point. Anytime I sin, it's a declaration that I don't think God's way is the right way. I'm going to do things my way because I think my way is better. I think I have a a greater level of correctness, of rightness when I do things my own way rather than God's way. The difference between me and God, they are many, but one of them is... He is righteous, which means everything he does and everything he calls for me to do is always as it absolutely should be. With no flaw, no error, no shortcoming, nothing unethical, nothing immoral, everything sacred. Because he is that God just doesn't do that. He is that. And it would help us a great deal, would help us a great deal, if in most of the actions and words and efforts and everything that comes out of our lives, if we would remember that simple yet profoundly complicated thought that the Lord is righteous. It would really alter a whole lot of things that I think about, that I do, that I feel, that I say, that I write. If I would just pause long enough to remind myself that on a consistent basis, that the Lord is righteous. But not only is the Lord righteous, he loves righteousness. He loves righteousness. Righteousness carrying with it the idea of not just a state of being, which is to be righteous, but a state of acting, living in our righteousness. You could also translate this, the Lord loves righteous deeds. He loves the outflowing of righteousness from others. Why? Because the only way others can have righteousness flow from them is if they are in union with the will of God. If they have come under his rule and his reign and his kingship and his leadership. If they have found their salvation and hope in him. And he is living through them because I am not righteous. He is righteous. And if any righteousness will come from me, it's because it's flowing from me through the work of God. This is why God loves righteousness because we were made 
made to reflect the glory of God. We were made to bear his image. And if I'm going to bear his image, he is righteous. And if I'm bearing his image, righteousness will flow from me back to him. Which means this is a really fancy poetic because it's the Psalms way of saying God loves people who rightly reflect his glory. He is righteous and he loves righteousness. And then I ask myself the question. Is righteousness what is most commonly seen flowing from my life? Say, Philip, I don't see that anywhere in the psalm. Well, you know what? If you're reading the Bible and not asking questions of yourself, you're doing it incorrectly. When I get to something like this where it says the Lord is righteous and he loves righteousness, I have to pause and ask myself the question, is what is flowing from my life predominantly righteousness? Because I would really like to be able to say that the Lord loves me. He loves righteousness. I don't want to be in the two sentences above this one and and find out what happens to the wicked. I, I don't want any part of that. Do not sign me up for that. I'll take the eyelids thing before the whole snares, brimstone, fire, portion, cup thing. Okay. The Lord loves righteousness. Am I righteous? Am I Demonstrating righteousness is Christ's image being manifest in my life. Am I being conformed to the image of Jesus in such a way that my life reflects the righteousness of God that has now been given to me as a gift of grace in the gospel and the work of Christ himself? Sadly, not as frequently as it should be. Go all the way back to verse 1. The Lord is my refuge. I find myself more times than not as the voice of the second half of verse 1 and into verse 2. But what about? Isn't it terrible? How can we be sure? Let's try to keep ourselves safe. All the reasons why I'm just not sure about what's going on. And I'm, I'm stressed out. That's not righteous. It's okay to be that way. We talked about this last week. It's okay to be that way. It's okay to say those things. It's not okay to stay that way. And if I persistently live in a state of uncertainty and a lack of faith and a lack of trust in the greatness of God and his refuge for me, I am living in unrighteousness. And David puts the cherry on top at the very end. We all want to behold the face of God. We want to see him. We want to know him. We want to find our freedom in him, our comfort in him, our safety in him, our joy in him, our delight in him. This is what we want. This is the longing of our heart as image bearers. We desire the presence of God. You want that this morning? Yes? Here it is. Crazy easy. You ready? The upright will behold his face. All you have to do is be completely and perfectly upright with no flaws whatsoever. 
come on down. That should be incredibly encouraging. It is not when I read it. Maybe you're on a different plane than me. When I read that, it actually stresses me out. It goes back to the whole anxiety thing at the beginning of the passage. Because when I have a real and honest self-examination and when I really look at my motives and I look at my heart and I look at the way I think and I look at the way I act and I look at the way I speak and I look at the attitudes that I harbor in my life, great many of them, sadly, are not upright. They're just not. They're not upright. And friend, I'll tell you, That if that's how you live your Christianity, like I just explained right there, you will never, ever feel the confidence to say what David said at the beginning of the psalm. You will never confidently declare in the Lord, I take refuge ever. You won't ever be able to do it. If your self-examination, which the scripture says we should do, always drives you to look at your own shortcomings. Hear me this morning. Your shortcomings have become your idol. Your sin patterns have become your God. Should I see my shortcomings? Yes. Should I repent of them? Yes. Should I strive in the power of the spirit through the work of the gospel to progress away from my sin and to progress towards holiness and to progress towards righteousness and to progress towards greater image bearing? Absolutely. But none of those things will happen in and of myself. The only thing that something like this psalm should do is to drive me to the face of Jesus. Where's the Lord reigning? The beauty of this is that the power of this psalm is found right in the middle of it. Where is the Lord reigning? Where is the Lord's place in all this? Where does he exhibit his rule and his power? From his holy temple. And what is, or better I should say, who is that holy temple? Jesus said it when he was here in his incarnation. He said, if you tear down This temple. I will rebuild it in three days. And people were aghast. Took years to build this temple. Oh, you have no idea. This temple's been here for all eternity. And if you tear it down, which I'm going to let you do. By the way, I'm going to let you do that. I'm going to build it back up in three days. And they remembered at his resurrection that he was speaking of his body. Jesus is the temple and we are being built up into that temple. He's the head. We're the body. He's the foundation. We're the bricks on the top. This is the reality for the Christian. I am not upright in heart, but Jesus is upright in heart. And he has brought me into himself by his grace and for his glory. And if I keep looking at myself and I keep looking at my circumstances, I will never take refuge in the Lord. But if I look away from me and I look to the glory of the resurrected Christ, I will always find refuge in the Lord always and then I will accept myself for what I truly am what the Lord has declared me to be I am upright why because of my actions because of my efforts because of my work no but because of Jesus he has declared me righteous and all of his declarations are true and everlasting 
And so, friend, my encouragement to you this morning is that Jesus is a lover of righteousness. And Jesus, to those who are his people, because of his work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, because the Lord reigns in his holy temple. Jesus has done the act of sacrifice. Jesus has done the act of atonement. Jesus has done the act of reconciliation. And as a gift to us, he has taken our wickedness that deserves the snares and the brimstone and the fiery wind and the, and the fire of the eyelids of God gazing out our, our weakness and our lowliness and our sin. He has taken our wickedness. And he's exchanged it for his righteousness. And the reason Jesus can pray in his high priestly prayer, Father, love them with the same love with which you love me, is because God loves righteousness. Jesus is perfectly righteous. The Father loves the Son. And the Son has given in full measure all of his righteousness to us. So that when God sees us, he sees the shining reflection of the glory of his son. And he says, I love them. And when that's the case, friend. When that's the case. You really embrace that. You really believe that. You really see that. That's how you live. That's where you live. You can declare confidently with David in the Lord. I take refuge. I find my safety, I find my comfort, I find my rest in him. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you that we can take refuge in you. Not because of us. Oh, not because of us, oh Lord. But because of you. Your glory. Your majesty, your grace, your forgiveness, your love, your mercy, your compassion, your patience, your forgiveness, your redemption, your great exchange of your son for us. The abiding presence of your spirit connecting us with your kingdom, adopting us. Transferring us from one kingdom to another. Giving us citizenship and freedom. Father, don't allow us to make an idol of our sin. Father, our sins are great and they are many. But the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is greater still. Father, help us to confidently, regardless of the circumstance, approach your throne, your holy temple, as David did in this psalm, and to declare among all of the brokenness of this world, in the Lord I take refuge. And Father, help us to feel Deep within our souls and our hearts and our minds, the very being of ourselves, our very existence. Let us feel your embrace of us as your children. Let us feel 
the safety and the comfort and the love that comes from being under your wings. From being behind your shield, from being under your banner. And Father, give us the faith to never walk away from it. To look every trying, painful circumstance of life square in the face and to declare the Lord is righteous. And we thank you for it in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to stand as we sing a song of response together this morning.